Hello, fermented folks. Thank you for tuning in to another week of Fermented Fiction, another month where we feature one of our fellow creative souls out there, our featured author of the month. This month is Dylan West, author of Scribe's Descent, Emulsipation. Is that right. how you pronounce it? Emulsipation? And uh, a couple other uh, fantasy, sci-fi, YA stories. I know that uh, Dylan is working on a few other things, and we'll get into some of that today. Thank you for joining us, Dylan. Uh, I am Clay Vermolum, host Travis Vermolum. My brother is the other host. Uh, Dylan, how are you doing? Doing well, and that's how you say your last name? I've been noodling over that ever since I first saw it in print. <laughs> like Vermolum, yes. but you say Vermolum, like another Vermolum. syllable on the end, right? Sure. Yeah. It's very Dutch. <laughs> okay, <all> right. <laughs> Apparently, the Dutch like to drop uh, invisible, invisible consonants in there. Um, yeah. But yeah, that is a, an ongoing struggle in the family, for sure. <laughs> so dylan let's get right into it um i was reading your author bio actually for the first time i've i've worked my way through your book here um but i hadn't actually read your bio and i i was interested to see that the first thing you actually mentioned is uh, about your faith um i'd expect you to say like you're a scientist or a geologist or something um <laughs> So I find that really interesting that you uh, emphasize your dedication to writing faith-based books in your very short bio. Um, I love this, especially since you write relatively hard sci-fi um, in terms of, you know, you focus very much on the actual science. For those of you who don't know the difference between hard and soft sci-fi, soft sci-fi is kind of like it almost becomes fantasy in space sometimes. It's like the actual science of the world doesn't matter as much. Um, whereas hard sci-fi, which is what Dylan works on primarily, is uh, he very much explains the science. The science very much is part of the story. And in a lot of ways, the science is the story. Um, and I really like that you write that way, Dylan. Uh, what challenges do you find writing science-forward narratives with a faith-based faith intention? Um, do you find any inherent conflict between science and faith? And if so, how do you address and circumnavigate those things? Hmm. I've been getting that question a lot lately. And honestly, I'm always kind of a little bit confused, I guess, because or a little surprised because I, I really don't see any conflict at all. Um, I think maybe sometimes people get hung up on old earth versus new earth, you know, that kind of thing. Bible says literal six days of creation the fossil record, at least as it's presented in geology textbooks, claims that it's millions and mil or billions and billions of years old. And so which which one's right? Is Genesis one chapters one and two right? Or the fossil record right? Like honestly, you know, I just don't really see a conflict there because there's just so much room for interpretation in Genesis mm -hmm. for either young or older. And honestly, as much as I've studied geology and biology and all these other ologies, um, <laughs> I, I see room to go either way with young earth or old earth, depending on how you interpret the findings and the assumptions that go into dating and all those things, right? So like for me, I'm just kind of like, eh, you know, I, I don't want to get too dogmatic about it. That's a good answer. And Travis is a, uh, a theology major 
and got his master's oh, in theology. Sweet. So you oh, guys could have some good conversations. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love your response with those different stories of Genesis because I even struggle. Like, I get asked a lot, like, do you think the Bible is literal? in every sense of every single word is exactly what is seen, said. And it's like, I don't know how to answer you. Like some of it, probably mm -hmm. some of it, maybe not. Some of it, we're still arguing about it. It is a story that's lasted for thousands of years. Like, of course, it's going to have a lot of discourse, just as every religious text there, is going to. You there, know? There's parts that are very clearly figurative. Like when Jesus says, I am the door, I don't think that means he physically has hinges yeah, <laughs> to the side of his, you know, right. But there are some things mm. in scripture that I think are both literal and figurative. Whereas mm. where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. I think that's mm. literal and figurative because figurative, like spiritually, we shine light whenever we show our good works. But mm. physically, like literally, we are black body radiation emitters, you know, mm. like we actually mm -hmm. have bioluminescence. I don't want to give away spoilers from my book, but there's some bioluminescence <laughs> going on in there. And later on, I looked it up. I was like, is this even feasible? And then, yeah, I admit, sometimes I st start with story and then I backtrack and go, wait a minute, is this is this legit? You know, sometimes it goes that way. Um, and then I'm like seeing these articles that say all humans bioluminesce. It's just at such a faint degree that you have to have very sensitive cameras to see it. I was like, well, that's really cool. And then it made me think of you are the light of the world. I'm like, whoa, not just black body irradiation, but actual visible light comes off humans, just a tiny, tiny lumens. A follow-up on that. I'm curious, like, so that's the hard science that like feeds into the story. I get very, very, very like into how narratives like the Bible, like other religious texts have shaped our society. And I wonder, have you, have you had those realizations of those stories as well while being a writer of like the importance that narrative plays in the shaping of culture and of world and of like fiction can be something more than just passing the time I guess does that does your faith influence that as well oh yeah like um there's two books I tell people there are two books that changed my life forever and this is probably i'm probably like skipping ahead and answering some of your future questions but you know hey um one of them was the bible when i was 11 years old um the second one was salamanderstron by brian Jacques, one of the red wall books so one you of might the best be, ones. all right so so like the bible you're like okay that makes sense right you became a christian okay that 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 checks but salamanderstron <laughs> so the first 13 years of my life i hated reading i thought it was boring Every mm -hmm. book that I was forced to read by teachers and being held at GPA point, like you, thou shalt read this book. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mm -hmm. guess I will. Um, they were boring. And I, I thought that all books were boring because mm -hmm. I just didn't ever run across a book that I liked until I went to a scholastic book fair in like the seventh or maybe eighth grade, one of those two. <laughs> And with my own money, I bought this book with a badger on it because I thought it was cool. Mm -hmm. And I started, I started reading the first chapter and I was like, hey, this isn't, this isn't half bad. I think I might read this for fun. And I just <laughs> fell in love with it. And at the mm -hmm. ripe old age of 13, I took a stack of 400 loose leaf notebook papers and a number two pencil 
And I closed myself up in my bedroom. My parents had no idea I was doing this. And I wrote a Redwall knockoff, 400 mm-hmm. pages long. At age 30, that's my first novel. And I will <laughs> tell you, it was drivel. Mm-hmm. But oh. it was 400 pages of drivel. And yeah. it really got me excited about both reading and writing novels. And 28 years of writing novels later, here I am with a published one, and I owe it all to the late great Brian Jacques. Yeah, we he was very influential. About narrative, you, I, I strayed really far from your, your question. You, <laughs> I don't you think might. so, though. I don't think so. I mean, yeah. like you, you reminded me of. I had a professor in my master's who said. Um, when we were kind of coming to that question of like, is the Bible supposed to, is, are you taking this story as literal historical fact? She said, set that aside. She said, treat it like a psychologist. She said, you approach it every day, read the story that I've assigned you and say, well, what is this doing for, what is this influence in my life today? And that just, like you say with Salamander's throne, like I, when I approached it like that, it just took it to another level of, wow, this story can really, just as a story not as a fact affect how i'm living oh yeah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah you could definitely get a huge impact on your life even if you read the bible without the dogma behind it of this is my rule book for life and i have to adhere to it as an obedient christian even if you just read it as story it would still change your life of course if you obey you know not just read but obey i mean that you know hikes it up to a completely different level for sure. We were also heavily influenced by the Redwall books. Um, and Salamandastron is the best one because Farago is yeah. a G. For <laughs> Farago, yeah, that uh, I still have a living D&D character named Farago, actually, um, in Travis's universe. Yeah, still alive. Um, yeah, I was more of a I was a Marl Fox kid. I like Marl Fox is sick. You know what? All right, I have a confession. This is a deep one. You might kick me out of the podcast after I confess this. I haven't right. read that book or about five of the very later books. I just haven't done it yet. It's on, on my list. I, I want to do it, but um, there, I had to had to get that off my chest. Good. You've come clean. <laughs> yeah, I hope you don't get canceled for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Brian Jock. <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> to all his uh, fans who might be watching this or listening to this podcast. Is that Did early you? inspiration? Is that a reason that you were drawn to YA at all, or is there other influences? Um, there are two primary reasons for me enjoying to write YA, and one of them is a wholesome, good, clean, moral reason, and the other one is, is dirty and lucrative. Which one do you want to hear about first? Obviously dirty and lucrative. I mean, oh, what okay. kind of show do you right. think this is? <laughs> you know, I, just, I can't help myself here to build the intrigue. So, um, so the the dirty businessy kind of reason for YA is because the genre sells. It is just, it, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's marketable. Um, so marketable because partly because of its age. Well, there's two parts of this. Because of the age de- demographics it hits, it hits two very important demographics for reading. One is that it hits younger people who I've read the stats that like for um, every one adult that reads a book, nine children read a book. Like it's mm-hmm. just that like 
it's not even close. Children yeah. read mm-hmm. books and adults like work jobs and they might eke out a book mm-hmm. a year or 10 or ever. Um, well, so, I mean, yeah. I'd like to cut in there. I think that's yeah. interesting because adults are like, I think kids are very much like pushed to read books too, you know, Mm -hmm. like you were saying about being held at grade point average, accelerated reader programs. Like there's no, there's not a lot of parents out there that are going to tell their kids like, don't read a book, you know, like if, if most parents see their kid reading a book, they're going to be like, good on you. You're going to be smarter than me or whatever you might say, you know, but like, whereas adults, it's like, if you're reading a book, that's a, like, Every I picture adults like in my brain, we're reading book before we go to bed. We got to get up for work, like you said. But like you don't picture adults like reading books for like nine hours a day. But like I can totally see kids doing that and being encouraged to do that. So, yeah, I mean, everything about that demographic is supported to to read more. I mean, not to interject further, I I want you to get back to that second part, but like even more more so i think sometimes reading as an adult is looked on negatively sometimes of like a, yeah. a lack of physical if it, hobby if it's fiction. i've had conversations where mm-hmm. i have friends mm-hmm. that are like hey like i don't have time to read i lift and it's like no you you have time <laughs> to do both like you can you can fit that into your schedule but okay <laughs> you know if you have fiction. to want to and mm-hmm. i i read and write between sets because I power lift. So I have like 15, 20 minutes of rest between sets. When you're like deadlifting 500 pounds, you're squatting 400 pounds, you need a lot more than just a five minute break, right? So I'm over here banging out scribes, um, a flame, which is book two, you know, on my computer, because I work at in my gym, I mean, in my garage. So I can go back and forth between the garage and my desk. So it's really good. Okay, so back to the demographic. The, the young people, they read way more books than adults. And then women among the adults, women outread men every day of the week, mm-hmm. all day long. It's not mm-hmm. even close. Mm-hmm. Um, so and the funny thing about that, though, is that you, the biggest demographic who actually reads YA, I'm told, is women between the ages of 30 and 50. <laughs> like, they read more mm-hmm. YA than the young adults read YA. Hmm. So... There you go. I mean, by writing and mark and selling YA, you're hitting the two biggest demographics. You've got the, the children and you got the women. Hmm. So that was my businessy reason. I was like, you know, if I just up the age by, you know, a few more years, I'm going to hit the purely adult sci-fi market where it's it's not crickets, but the the market is a lot smaller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And part of why J.K. Rowling is a billionaire today is because Harry Potter wasn't just a good series. It was a good series marketed to kids. And so mm-hmm. her market size was much bigger. It was marketed to kids. And then it suspiciously got more teenage as those kids <laughs> became teenagers. And then they became obsessed with it and pushed on their kids. <laughs> yep. It definitely worked on me. Uh, I was that kid. Well, what's your... What's your wholesome reason, Dylan? Oh, okay, good. Yeah, so my wholesome reason is that I enjoy reading YA just on my own. Like, if you put me in a room with a bunch of books, inevitably, when I go and just pick books off of shelves and go sit down to start, you know, sifting through them, most of them are going to be YA. And I think it's because I like that 
it's generally written with a, a bit of a simpler vocabulary. Not mm. that my vocabulary is stunted and I have to, you know, use the bumpers at the bowling alley kind of thing, um, but that I prefer that diction because it's just e easier to read. And I find that YA sometimes has more action in it than adult mm. novels. Not always, but general feel. Yeah, I, I could see that. And I think a lot of the like plot elements and threads are also a little more transparent. It can make the story a lot easier to follow along. Um, so I, I could see the appeal of that for sure. And YA typically doesn't have a million POV characters. I'm looking yeah, at yeah. you, Grim. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I can't it's I mean you have to be George R. R. Martin for me to read a book with 15 POV characters um I tried mm -hmm. with the um gosh what's um the the sci-fi it turned into a show why am I the expanse the expanse, right? like, the expanse mm -hmm. it started off with like only two or three POVs and then like fast forward to like book seven it's like whoa there's so many now but it got to a point where there were pov characters i was just kind of slogging through to get to the pov characters that i actually liked mm -hmm. yeah i mm -hmm. started disconnecting from the series sorry if i just offended like half of your fan base there um, <laughs> i don't think you did clay and i have, clay and i have talked about that a lot of i'm a huge huge wheel of time fan and clay's also a wheel I would say not to speak for you, but I think you're a wheel of time fan. Not as big as me, but I think that's one of the biggest problems of the series is there's just like six characters that you're like, I don't want to read about you. <laughs> I just mm -hmm. don't care anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with that. The wheel of time in particular has, I call this problem um, American horror story syndrome which is like they try to do too many things with one narrative but uh because that's what american horror story does every season <laughs> they never learn and it, it just <laughs> gets worse and worse um but we'll move on we don't need to tear apart american horror story right now Again, i Again. do that all the time <laughs> um so this connection with redwall is a is a good one to unearth because it actually does shine a little more light on a couple of my other questions. Uh, one of them was what's your fascination with subterranean worlds and creatures. Um, that's clearly of a lot of interest to you. It's uh, very central in scribes ascent and emulsification, I assume. Um, so where does that come from? Have you always been interested in the subterranean world uh, in particular? And like, uh, what drew you to geology? Do you study geology? What's what's up with all the geology stuff? Okay, so those are great questions, and I have really nebulous answers for them. Um, nice. So for, for the underground thing, um, it's a combination of things. Like for one, I enjoyed the Tunnel series by Brian Gordon, uh, Brian Williams, and Roderick Gordon, published mm. by Chicken House. It it was. Um, Kind of a sleeper hit, I guess. Uh, have you guys heard of the Tunnel series? No. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So part of the sleeper hit. Um, so if you do like Subterranean, check their stuff out because it's really awesome. Um, I got some inspiration from that. But I think other parts of it 
are I like world building that deals particularly with um, geology in general and the physical sciences. There is a style of world building that is not this, like um, Harry Potter, for, for instance, right? There is tons of world building in Harry Potter, but you're not going to find geology in Harry Potter, right? Like it takes place on Earth. And most of the world building there is social, societal, you know, mm -hmm. fantastical administration, all these brilliant mm -hmm. bureaus and, you know, organ, you know, that those, those kinds of things, societies. Um, but I, or another inspiration of mine was really from Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive, especially The Way of Kings, the first book in that series. Actually, that novel is the, my favorite novel that's not one I wrote. I always have to throw in that that little disclaimer there, um, <laughs> that little qualifier. Um, the the way that the different rock formations and the the way the storm impacted the the planet and all and all the adaptations that happened and all the societal things that the storms caused. I was just in awe. I was like, whoa. I want to do something a little bit like this. Um, mm -hmm. So when I got to writing, um, actually, I think it was like, I was already writing the subterranean and I saw that and I was like, Ooh, I'm going to amp up what I'm already doing. I think that's really <laughs> the way it worked. Um, my main critique partner, his name is Philip Nelson. I had to give him a shout out. He's been critiquing my everything I've ever written for 11 and a half years. Okay. The dude is awesome. Um, he pointed out something about certain narratives that really stuck with me. And I think that it's true for me too. He says that he enjoys the type of story where the options for the main characters are extremely constrained, mm -hmm. that they are really limited and, um, and they have to make do with very, very few choices and very hard choices. And I felt mm -hmm. that I guess on a subliminal level, that's what the bio prison that deep mine shaft in in the scribe series kind of did for the story mm -hmm. it added those constraints and it also presented a, a pretty cool opportunity to um to show some very exotic creatures and plant life and things on a planet in a way that felt realistic because these things wouldn't be roaming around on the surface you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not without mayhem um, yeah yeah <laughs> so, and and it gave me an opportunity to flex some science muscles in here right to show off you know to, to get into some chemosynthesis and some other kind of cool things that you don't see too much of that was another mm -hmm. thing for me. i like not just mainstream science but some of the fringes where you, you dip into the cool unusual things right i wanted to pull some of that in and an underground environment lends itself to that pretty nicely the unintended benefit of having made this underground is my my favorite video game genre is Metroidvania, and most Metroidvanias happen nice. underground, so it was like a perfect fit, you know, it's like it was meant to be. Yeah, um, and that's great. For those of you on the podcast who don't know this already, um, Scribe's Descent is not just the name of a book; it is also the name of a video game that's mm -hmm. that I'm building 
And I know that I'm probably stealing your thunder from a later question, but I had to throw that. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I appreciate the plug. We are definitely going to uh, give you some room for plugging. So that's great. Um, yeah, I, I really like that you use your world to put some physical restraints around your characters. I think that nautical stories are popular for the same reason. They do the same things because humans suck in water. And like, if you're on a boat, like you better not fall off the boat or we know well, what's going to happen. You it's did this in crevasse too, mm -hmm. right? Like the mountain is a big opponent in itself, you know, so. For sure. Yeah. Uh, anytime people are, you know, anytime people are out there in nature, they're, we're actually pretty squishy creatures. So, you know, um, we are the glass cannons of nature. So like whenever <laughs> we're out there, like. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm going to put that somewhere. I'm going to cross-stitch yeah. it on a throw pillow. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And one th other thing I wanted to add to that, because I like how you uh, you reference Sanderson and the societal effects of geology in the planet. Um, I think that is something you do really well in Scribes Descent. A lot of the politics and sociology are built around the geography of the planet and the science that is seeking to understand it. And I mean... Like Travis's teacher about theology, a fun I was a history major, and a fundamental that my teacher always taught me was uh well, one of my favorite teachers, I should say, always taught me was um if you want to understand any country ever, fig uh, learn about its geography first. Because that is so true. I mean, geography and the planet where people live, everything about their culture is gonna revolve around that. You know, mm -hmm. if there's a reason that like the Chinese have been a powerful empire for thousands of years, and it's because they're surrounded by desert, mountains, uh, ocean, you know, and like they have all this lush forest and resources. And then there's a lot of places in like, you know, the Central Africa that don't have those resources and desertification has set in and you know, it makes it really hard to be alive there. And there's they, a reason they a lot, of, a lot those of the big staple grains there. Like yeah. uh, China had rice. The Middle East had all sorts of grains. Mm -hmm. Or Central Africa really didn't have too many staple grains and large domesticable land mammals. Mm -hmm. Right. There was right. the water buffalo that could pull the, the, the plow However, they do that, the harvesting of the rice and the rice paddies, they use the water buffalo for that. Um, mm -hmm. You didn't have water buffaloes or like really cattle or a lot of those things to work the ground in Africa. And uh, so, all right. So another thing, I'm a really big Jared Diamond um, guns, germs and steel fan. That's I told you, mm -hmm. that's that's mm -hmm. my favorite nonfiction book other than the Bible. I, that's like a world building guide that doesn't yeah, market it that doesn't market itself that way but it, it really is mm -hmm. and i probably drew a lot of inspiration from that too if you haven't read guns germs and steel that's a great uh point dylan um and you are a writer read that because like you don't need to make up a whole lot if you understand the real world is you know all the fantasy world building elements are they're real. They're all here. Or a dungeon master. <laughs> or a dungeon master. Yeah. Read Guns, Germs, and Steel. It's you should just read it anyway, just to kind yeah. of understand uh what's going on. It definitely helps. What were you gonna say earlier, Travis? Oh, I was gonna talk about that of like um 
uh, from the DM perspective, I don't have the writer perspective as much as you two, obviously, and reader DM perspective. I feel like it's kind of the opposite with, with taking on those, it's just so much work. I, and you've shown, I'm sure in your novel, it's so much work of mm -hmm. going into a, how environmental things affect that. And I never realized that until I tried to like DM a session where the environment plays in a key. Like I put my people on a ship and it was like, oh yeah, pirates are fun. We're going to go on a ship. And then it was like, I, I don't know a damn thing about boats. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't describe the scenery. I've never, I've been to the ocean twice. I've never been out on the open ocean. What am I supposed to talk about? And mm -hmm. I think it showed and it really gave me an appreciation for the work that goes into those, those very environmentally based books and stories are like, yeah, you got to put in the legwork to to know what you're talking about. And I love the research. I, all right, so there's two parts of writing that are my absolute favorite, and neither one have anything to do with writing. One is mm -hmm. the research. Two is sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. That's weird. I know there's a lot of people that are probably looking <laughs> at me like I have a, another head sprouting right here off of my shoulder, maybe a third one over here. Um, but it's true. Those are my favorite parts. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions because uh, obviously we are uh, Twitter friends. And I see you always posting about your marketing strategies and tactics. Um, so I am I am interested. Uh, what draws you so much to the marketing side of things? Well, um, I have met too many authors and read their books that were just that blew my mind. I mean, my head just came right off my shoulders. That second head that I was talking about, it used to be there until I read their book. It <laughs> shot off and now it's in the neighbor's yard. The, the cats are licking it right now. Um, that good. I mean, that that amazing of prose and storytelling. And it's languishing under a, mm -hmm. a sea of 7 million plus Amazon books out there that don't deserve to be in the same market as some of these other books, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And... The, the the good stuff is kind of getting just muddled and lost and drowned in a sea of mediocrity. And the reason why it's happening um, isn't just because it's so easy to put stuff on KDP nowadays, which is a big, you know, a big reason. But the other reason is that those are authors very often have one of two problems. Either they pick, an, pick up an agent and a publisher and they expect those two entities to do all of their sales and marketing for them because they're an author and those other guys, they deal with the, the sales and marketing and never the twain shall meet. Um, that's one problem. The other problem is, you know, even for the self-published guys, um, that uh, there is a distinct lack of love for sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. And so that translates into very little effort put into it. And when that effort is put into it, it's generally on the very easy to do stuff. Because like I said, on one of my tweets today, people tend to do what's easy. Absolutely. Not what's important, what's easy. Mm -hmm. Now, as an author, we're already kind of breaking that rule, right? Because it's not, there's nothing really easy about writing a book. So you could be forgiven, right? For like saying, hey, I wrote a book. I mean, shoot, how much more delayed gratification can you really ask for? <laughs> I've already done that much, right? But then, but then you're asking me to go even farther and go hawking my wares and 
setting up a table and, you know, learning how to set up ads on Amazon and all this craziness. And well, yeah, you, you have to do it or your, your stuff is going to languish in obscurity and all these people out there who would love your book will never even know about it. Mm -hmm. They won't even have a chance. It's almost like the gospel, right? Like <laughs> how will they know if someone doesn't go and preach to them? It, it's like that. And, and I grew up in a family. Well, after my parents became Christians, right? At age 11, they were party animals before that. So it was like a huge switch <laughs> um, that happened around the year 1992, um, where I started going off with my dad and the deacons of the church to visit people um, on visitation night. And I, at 11 years old or 12, 11 or 12, I would go with these 40 year old men and knock on strangers doors and tell them about Jesus. And I got practice with public speaking, with persuasion, with getting over my, Oh, I don't want to talk to somebody. I don't know. And all, I like, I just, I got all that beat out of me, like at a young age. So now it's not a big deal if like somebody says, hey, Dylan, hands me a microphone. There's an audience of 100 people. Tell us about your book. And I didn't know this was going to happen. I could just jump up and do it. You know, it's, it's no big deal. Um, so for me to sell stuff, you know, that's that comes natural to me with, you know, with my products. Um, I have some ex sales experience with other people's products and it, it, it just the passion wasn't really there. Um, mm -hmm. But so there's a lot of authors that they don't have that background. They are not comfortable in front of people. The mm -hmm. idea of asking someone to buy their book just makes them want to, I don't know, crawl out of their skin. Um, and um, I, I try to help these authors to work through that. Well, first of all, to convince them that they can't stay in this condition and expect their book to do well and just hope mm -hmm, that they can mm -hmm. and hope that word of mouth just kind of spontaneously combusts in their in their favor. When in reality, word of mouth doesn't happen until you've gotten thousands and thousands and thousands of your book on thousands and thousands of shelves in mm -hmm. front of hundreds and hundreds of eyeballs. And then word of mouth might catch hold if your book is good, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't happen with tens or dozens of people. And I think that's a misconception with authors. They don't understand the, the level, the scale that has to be, the critical mass that has to be there in order for word of mouth, the magical, ooh, it just autopilots itself, you know, that moment that everybody <laughs> kind of dreams of. It's, it's kind of like a fantasy, right? It's real, but it's it's fantastical for, for most who didn't mm -hmm. create the mass first. So I've been trying to really educate other authors on that because I'm just, I'm heartbroken for both the author who feels like their baby is stillborn and for the readers out there who would absolutely be tickled to read these books and to get mm -hmm. out of the mainstream stuff and to find stuff that's actually really creative and risk-taking and be like, whoa, this is refreshing. You know, on both sides, mm -hmm. I have sadness. And if I can be a part of the solution if the Google document I've written about all my marketing tips and stuff and the, the Twitter space calls I do every Saturday, uh, every Sunday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern, you know, if those things can help even just a few of my Twitter friends, I feel like um, I'm uh, I'm doing something.
you know, having, having some kind of uh, benefit. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, and so we've got like a little under two minutes left. I would love to continue this uh, conversation, but maybe we'll have you on again when you release your second yeah. book. Um, for now, I think that those resources you are presenting to your fellow authors, and I know this is really a genuine part of your mission. Um, for those of you listening, Dylan is not just saying this. He is on there uh, doing this every day for real. So uh, thank you very much for that, man. I, I think it's great. I'm very happy to be a part of your network. Um, so tell us, Likewise, where can people find you? you? Oh, heck yeah, absolutely. Um, so where can people find you? How can they join that network just like I have? Okay. Um, and how can they be a part of that? And then uh, when's your next book coming out? You got one okay. minute. <laughs> Dylan, <laughs> That's my website. Sign up for the newsletter. Get the geekiest science research there. But Dylan West Author as a handle in Facebook and Twitter gets you to my stuff there. And book two, hopefully, will come out this May. I'm trying really hard. Um, awesome. So yeah, if you just remember the words Dylan West author, squished together, that'll take you really far if you just pop that into a browser somewhere. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dylan. It was awesome <laughs> talking to you. All right, guys. Clayton, nice to meet you, Travis. I'll see you on Twitter. Yep. Take care, man. Bye.